0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled Creation in Chaos Part 2, recorded in September 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman.
1: Another example. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search out and take them, says God. Uh, This is to his enemies. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. So wherever God's enemies try to escape, he'll get them. And notice he can use the serpent as a tool to get his enemies the serpent can be tamed, in a sense, to the will of God. Okay, here's the, 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 the struggle with chaos being cited as the reason for why God is the greatest of the gods. Let the heavens praise your works, O Adonai, your faithfulness, the assembly of the holy ones. Those are the other gods or the angels, if you feel more comfortable with that term. For who in the skies can be compared to Adonai? Who among the heavenly beings is like Adonai, a God feared in the council of the Holy Ones, great and awesome above all that are around him? O Adonai, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Adonai, your faithfulness surrounds you. And here comes the creation part. Your rule You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Again, seems to us a natural thing, but now we have the supernatural. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it you have founded them. So notice the discussion of the conflict precedes the declaration of God's sovereignty over all things. Here's one of my favorite uh, ones. This doesn't actually mention uh, the creation of the universe, but it does give an account of the creation of God's own sovereignty. Now most biblical texts think of God's sovereignty as itself primordial and unchallengeable. But in this text, it actually has God uh, achieving sovereignty over the other gods. And uh, this comes from a a very common myth from Canaanite culture known as the divine council. Uh, In Canaanite, that that is say the the culture of the land that became Israel, the culture that was there before the Israelites came, uh, in the text that we have from that part of the world, we, we hear about the council of the gods which is which is convened by a god, a sort of a chief god named El. And in the Bible, El is identified with the God of Israel as well. But here, apparently not. It says, God has taken his place in the council of El. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And what does God say? He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then you have the psalmist sort of commenting, they, the other gods, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. So notice that under the rule of the other gods, the council of El, the world is chaos, it's darkness, because they don't don't attend to the needs of justice, the demands of justice. So here we have a chaos that's not envisioned in sort of monstrous terms, but in more prosaic terms of human justice. The other gods cannot give it. Therefore, says our God, I say, you are all gods, sons of Elion, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. So apparently there is either some combat being insinuated here, or at least that God is pronouncing judgment on these other deities, And they are no longer going to be uh, misruling the world in chaos. And so the psalmist concludes, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Notice his sovereignty over all people is a result of this condemnation that he makes of the other gods. Okay, so it continues. How do we satirize, how do we parody the human powers that that afflict us? I won't read this whole thing. But uh, this is from the book of Ezekiel. God is commanding the prophet Ezekiel to speak. He says, mortal, Ezekiel, raise a lamentation over the pharaoh of Egypt. This isn't the one from the Exodus. This is a later pharaoh that was troubling Israel. Say to him, you consider yourself a lion among the nations, but you are like a serpent, a tanim of the seas. You thrash about in your streams. You trouble the water with your feet. You foul your streams. Speaking of the Nile here. So, You think you're the, you think you're the source of order in the world? You're actually the source of chaos. Maybe Mr. Assad needs to hear that too. Uh, and so we have this discussion of what God is going to do to the Pharaoh. He says, Thus says the Lord Adonai. I'll give you a synopsis. He says, I'm going to take you like, like like the sea serpent you are, capture you in my net, drag you up on land, and feed you to my creatures. There's that motif again of God turning the chaos monster into a feast for his own creatures. Um, and uh, and so it continues from there, here applied to a human ruler and another human ruler. Here, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the one who destroyed the temple in 587 BC. Um, here, the speaker at the beginning is not God, it's actually, it's actually Mount Zion personified as a woman. She says, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a tanin, a serpent, one of those chaos monsters. He's filled his belly with my delicacies. He has spewed me out. Think of the the, the prophet Jonah, right, who got swallowed by the big fish and got spat out. The, the, The big fish in the book of Jonah is actually a parody of a chaos monster. And this is the same language. And so God says, I will punish Bel, and that's actually the Babylonian god, here sort of aligned with the Babylonian king. I will punish Bel in Babylon, make him disgorge what he has swallowed. So, you know, know, cough it up, cough Mount Zion back up, you know, I want it. And the nation shall no longer stream to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. So the language of the chaos battle can be described in purely mythological terms. It can be combined with naturalistic imagery. It can be combined with political critique as here. Uh, the last two bits, the future final victory over chaos. This is a passage from the book of Isaiah. This is called the Isaiah Apocalypse. It's a section of the book of Isaiah that probably derives from much later time because it reflects a kind of apocalyptic viewpoint. And in this, it says on that day, on that future day, in the indefinite future when God will rectify all wrongs, bring justice to the world, and... Uh, essentially transform creation to the way he truly wants it, on that day, Adonai with his cool and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will kill the serpent that is in the sea. Well, this serpent must have someone who's cloning him because he seems to be constantly being killed and getting back, getting back up. Uh, we have to remember, of course, that this is all, again, metaphorical language. Uh, but the fact that the monster keeps reappearing is a way of saying evil persists in the world, right? Evil does persist in the world. Now, again, we here might think of this language and this, all this talk of monsters as rather trite and even quaint, perhaps. But we have to remember that when people in history have lived in crisis, uh, when they live under horrific circumstances, uh, sometimes the only way you can image Such things. Your experience is through the monstrous, right? I'm sure there are plenty of people in the world right now who would very much like this to happen, right? Who could very much identify with this language. The great Catholic thinker, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, not as well known as C.S. Lewis, uh, Tolkien wrote a very famous essay, this was before all the fantasy he wrote, called uh, Beowulf. He wrote this about the first piece of English literature, uh, the epic Beowulf, which is about this guy who goes around killing monsters. And he says, people don't understand that this poem is about the monsters, and they don't understand what the monsters signify. They signify, among other things, the inevitability of death, the inevitability of injustice, the inevitability of the fallenness of the world. So when you're talking about monsters, you're not talking about fairy tales. You're talking about something that is deadly serious business. Uh, anyway, that was what he said about Beowulf, and it would probably hold true for this literature too. So that, and I think I have one more here. Yeah, uh, in this last passage from the Book of Daniel, which we'll revisit later in the, in the the series, uh, Daniel um, combines the idea of a final victory over the monsters and also the identification of the monsters with political realities. Uh, in this vision that Daniel has he says I saw in my vision by night uh, the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea think of the spirit of god blowing over the waters in genesis 1 this is creation language think of the sea as the source of chaos out of the sea come four great beasts different from each other and these are monstrous beasts we get a long description of them in the chapter and then he says as i watched thrones were set in place place and an ancient one took his throne that's god as an old guy his clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head was pure as wool, his throne was with fiery flames, etc., etc. And the court sits in judgment, and the books are opened. The books are opened on history. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And in the course of Daniel asking an angel, what does all this mean? The angel says, these four beasts are the four empires that have victimized Israel throughout history, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, and now the Greeks. So you have a combination of a future victory over the forces of the cosmic forces of chaos identified with historical forces. So these five different strategies that you can use to describe this fundamental idea can be combined in many ways in the Bible. So we've touched upon all of them now. What I want to do now is go to Genesis 1, our famous creation story, the one we're familiar with. Now, in I think in many English translations, the translation of the very first verse of the Bible has been improved significantly, grammatically. For at least Christians, uh, many translations of Genesis have been influenced by the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of Genesis 1-1 states, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the Greek translation says. And very likely that translation is influenced by the idea of creation ex nihilo, the idea that God creates literally out of nothing. Uh, however, that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew, the grammar of the Hebrew, does not say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in fact, all you need to do is read the, the six days of creation realize that he doesn't create it right then. He creates it over the course of the six days. What the Hebrew says is something more like this. When God began creating the heavens and the earth, which I'm going to talk about for the next chapter, when God started doing this, the earth was tohu wa vohu. I'll translate that in a moment. And darkness covered the face of Tehom. I'll tell you who she is in a moment. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. This is how it begins. When God was about to do something, this is what things looked like. And then, in verse 3, God says, let there be light. He begins the process of creation. The function of this lengthy, when God started, this is how things were, is a very common feature of ancient Near Eastern creation stories. It tells you what the story is about. It tells you the lack, the absence, the deficiency that is to be rectified in the course of what's going to happen. So what is the deficiency here? Well, we have to know something about the terms here. But even if we didn't know what tahom was and what Avohu were, uh, we would notice that uh, water, darkness is covering this, water is covering the earth. Has anyone read the most recent National Geographic? What, okay, you know what that was about. What would happen, there's a thought experiment, what would happen if all the sea ice melted? What would the world look like? The water levels will be 216 feet higher than they are today, and there's this beautiful map they have in it of what the world, what the coasts would look like. And it's not completely water world, but uh, there are significant differences. Florida no longer exists. Uh, the Central Valley of California is a lake. Um, it looks like Puget Sound half of China is gone. Uh, there is an inland sea in the middle of Australia. Uh, so the point is that this is a good description of what of what the, the author is saying. There's obviously a problem here because the world is mostly underwater, which means that humans can't live there. To home what is to home? To home is a word in Hebrew that is usually translated the deep, the abyss, the ocean even but it is cognate in meaning and in form with an Akkadian word. Akkadian is the language of Mesopotamia, with Akkadian Tiamat, which is the chaos monster of the Babylonian myth. Now, notice here, there's no, there's no monster. To, th- th- here's a good example of an author neutralizing the idea of the force of chaos. Here, to home is simply this inert Uh, Mass that covers the earth that needs to be ordered. And uh, since Tohom has no will of her own and no resistance to God, there doesn't have to be a struggle here. Uh, What about tohu wavohu? Let's figure out what's wrong with the earth. It was tohu wavohu. Various ways. Usually that's translated without form and void, or as I like to put it, formless and empty. But um, to give you an example of what it means... There's a passage in Isaiah, again one of the prophets, that uses part of this expression, tohu. And this is how uh, I think this is the NRSV translation puts it: "For thus says Adonai, who created the heavens; he is God, who formed the earth and made it; he established it. He did not create the earth as a chaos, as a tohu, as a tohu. Rather, he formed it to be inhabited." So tohu wavohu, however we translate it, means uninhabitable. So that's the problem. It's not capable of sustaining life. So one of the fundamental things that Genesis 1 is about is the creation of an ecosystem. That's what we would call it in today's scientific parlance. God creates an ecosystem out of an unlivable environment. Um, and we have to remember... That this is part of Isaiah 40 to 55, that very long creation story about how God is going to call Israel and recreate the people of Israel, recreate their land, uh, not to be a chaos like it's been, not to be uh, a people dispersed, but to be a a people restored and healed. And so he continues, he says, I am Adonai, there is no other. Notice there's the I'm greater than all the gods because the other gods don't exist. Here we actually have monotheism. I did not speak in secret, says God, in a land of darkness. Well, what was at the beginning in Genesis 1? Darkness was upon the face of the earth, right? I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in Tohu in chaos. Rather, I'm going saying to them now, Seek me in Jerusalem, come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. Uh, And so on. So the problem in Genesis, sorry, the problem in Genesis 1 is that there is no Capacity for life on the earth because the earth is underwater. Um, now, it doesn't actually say whether God created the earth. It, that's not an issue the author is interested in. Um, but again, people, later, later writers of the Bible have reflected on, well, well, where did the earth come from and where did this water come from and where did the darkness come from? Where did all this stuff come from that God is uh, sort of ordering now in this story? Well, there was two different opinions. One person said yes. Uh, this is Second Maccabees, that's the martyr, who said that, look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. Uk ex onton in the Greek. Not existed. And in the same way the human race came in being. So here is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. God did indeed create all of this out of nothing, even though Genesis 1 doesn't say so. But then there's a counter view. This is one of the wisdom books. It's called, not very inventively, the book of Wisdom. And it says, all, Your all-powerful hand created the world out of formless matter. Exomorphu hules. It actually says there's sort of inanimate, you know, disorganized matter that God is sort of using like putty to create the world out. So there are different viewpoints on this in the Old Testament even. Okay, so we, we all know the story in general outlines. It took six days for God to create. Why six days? Why not five or four or eight or nine? Um, Well, in part, because we want to have a lead up to the seventh day, right? But let's take the sixth for a moment and see how it's structured. Remember, the basic problem was tohu wavohu, formless and empty. Formlessness and emptiness, that's the characteristics of the world that need to be rectified. So, what's God going to do? He's going to take this formlessness and turn it into form. He's going to give structure to chaos. And that's what the first three days do. They create structure where there is no structure. They create the possibility of an ecosystem. And uh, this is the order it comes in. There's light and darkness first. That's the basic thing you need to know what forms are. If you had no light, be no, you wouldn't see any forms. If the, if the lights in this room went out, you could still hear me talking. And the projection went off, but you wouldn't see any forms. You wouldn't even be able to discern one thing from another. So you need light at least to, uh, for God to work with, you know, to identify form. And he uses light to separate things, separating one thing from another. Then he makes the sky and the sea, right? He makes it by creating a force field uh, between, in the middle of the waters, and the waters go down and up. Or maybe it's a plexiglass dome, right? Why is the sky blue? Because... Behind the sky, behind this clear glass dome is water. Water is blue. Water comes out of the sky. The sky is blue, right? That's the firmament. Uh, So it's the plexiglass biodome. And then, of course, you have the waters beneath, which is the sea. Unfortunately, we're still living in water world. We need to have uh, land appear. So he pushes the sea to various places. The land appears. The dry land, it says. The same dry land that Israel will cross uh, when it crosses the sea later on in Exodus. And plants. We might think of plants as, as living creatures, but uh, in terms of the, the, the conceptuality of this author, plants are part of the structure of the universe, they're not part of what fills it, what, what, what fills its emptiness. The main distinction being, everything on this side of the equation doesn't move, and everything on the other side moves. To give you an example, on day one, light was created. Well, light from what? Light! <laughs> This is a light that shines from nowhere. <laughs> it, 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 it just is, right? Light is primordial in Genesis 1. But in day, on day 4, moving lights come into being the sun, the moon, the stars, right? So things on this side don't move, things on that side do. This is structure, that's content. That's another way to think of it. And notice how they are paired up light and darkness, lights that move. Sea and sky, animals that live in the sea and sky. Land and plants, animals that live on land and us, right? So you see why we need six days to do it. We have a three-decker universe, three zones that need to be inhabited, and we have them inhabited, right? And of course, what does God do when he creates the animals? He says, "Be, be fruitful, multiply, fill things, fill these empty spaces for me. All right, other things about this story. So by day six, order has been achieved out of chaos. You have an ecosystem, it works, But what about us, created in the image of God? Uh, We could spend a whole course just on the history of the interpretation of that very pregnant phrase uh, in all of the Abrahamic religions. Uh, But here, I'm just going to focus on one interpretation, which is given of it, from the book of Wisdom. Again, Wisdom is very interested in themes of creation. And the author of Wisdom suggests that God created us for incorruption, that is to say for immortality, and made us in the image of his own eternity. So here's the idea that image of God means that human beings are made to be like God, immortal, to to share in God's own nature. And that's actually good Christian doctrine too. Um, But how do you gain, how do you actualize that potential, according to this author? You actualize it through wisdom. Wisdom is... Uh, Because of her, he says, I shall have immortality. In kinship with wisdom, there is immortality. But then he also makes it clear that it is with you, God, that wisdom is. She who knows your works and was present when you made the world, send her forth from the holy heavens and from the throne of your glory, send her that she may labor at my side and that I may learn what is pleasing to you. So human beings can only become immortal. They can only share in God's life by learning what is pleasing to God and conforming themselves to that, and they can't do that alone. They require the divine gift of wisdom. Who has learned your counsel, he says, unless you have given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high? That's where the Holy Spirit comes from. I guess the Holy Spirit got transgendered somewhere around there. At this point, it was still a she. Actually, in Eastern Christianity, some forms of Syriac Christianity, I believe, the Holy Spirit is still a she. But um, anyway, wisdom is a she. So... Holy Spirit said, thus the paths of those on earth were set right. People were taught what pleases you and were saved by wisdom. So again, notice that that uh, this particular author's take on that image of God bit is that we are, in a sense, part of the process of creation. Let her work by my side, says Solomon, who is the putative speaker of this book. Let her work with me so that we can, uh, that we can do what pleases you we can uh, follow the paths of those on earth, we can set them right. And this is another very important theme of creation. One of the reasons why creation is ongoing is because people have to participate in it. It's not just a divine activity. It is fundamentally divine, but being made in the image of God enables human beings to partake and participate and share responsibility for that, which is nothing less than, I've given you dominion over all the animals, says God in that first creation story, right? Right? That's sharing responsibility for the ecosystem. I guess that would be kind of relevant today, wouldn't it? Okay. Now, you may have noticed that there's no chaos in Genesis 1. There's no chaos anywhere there. There's nothing that is capable or even interested in resisting God's will. Now, we actually do hear about the taninim, the sea serpents, they're, one of the, they're the part of the sea creatures God creates on day five. But again, they're, they're perfectly harmless. You know, they, they, they'll eat from your hand, they won't, they won't disrupt creation. So it seems as though this creation story, so familiar to us, is completely at odds with the whole tradition of the rest of the Old Testament, where it's a struggle. But all you need to, to what you need to not forget is that the creation story in Genesis 1 is not a self-contained story. It's part of an ongoing plot. Now, of course, if we read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, we'll have an ongoing plot. Modern scholars, since the 1700s, have deduced that there is not one plot in the Pentateuch. There's not one version of what happens. There are actually about four. And uh, in the 20th century, um, or actually the 19th into the 20th, This theory that there were multiple sources that made up what we now have as the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, came to be known as the documentary hypothesis. And scholars gave hypothetical names to these sources. The priestly writer, or P, the priestly writer was one of the putative authors of these sources in the Pentateuch, and he is the one supposedly responsible for Genesis 1. We call him the priestly author, the priestly writer. Uh, And if you read the whole sort of plot that follows from that creation story, you'll see why. Because everything ends in a temple run by priests.
0: Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.